to another episode of Code of Conversations. We have special guest, Jesse Warden. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Oh, man. Glad to have you here, man. Uh, can, can you tell us a little bit about your background? How did you get into software and what kind of led up to the current position? A little. Okay. <laughs> uh, let's see. I started in community college. They had like a multimedia degree in director back in 98. 99, something like that. And back then, I know some of the millennials don't remember. I know the Z-Gens definitely don't remember, but it was all about CD-ROMs, like these discs, you get them in mm -hmm. magazines and you could install everything. It was amazing. And they, they became really cheap. Um, and then after that, I was like, dude, I totally got to go to school for this. So I went to the Art Institute of Atlanta and did a multimedia degree. Um, and then as soon as I got out, it was like thrust into programming and everything like that. Um, grew up in basically just taking all the designers, like the, the UI people who would build like websites or CD-ROMs or desktop software. They would build these crazy UIs and like Photoshop and fireworks and be like, make this work. I'm like, okay, <laughs> like how? So you'd have to, because Google wasn't that good back then. So like you had to use like forms a lot better, more and, you know, make these crazy interfaces. Um, and what happened was a lot of those things started getting like really big like like um you need more than just one developer so then i started working on you know large uis um and i would always think oh wow this team's massive there's like two developers on it and you look at the back end you like 30 people working on your apis and stuff um so then we moved to flex which is after flash because it was like kind of like the enterprise stuff so you'd have like bigger uis and stuff like that um and then once it died i started doing basically a lot of front end and back end stuff. So like node, um, I did a lot of serverless kind of batch processing kind of stuff for a while. That's actually how I learned back end stuff. I don't think I've ever actually built an API that wasn't a BFF, like an actual API. Like it's all been connecting to some other microservices. Um, so I was at Capital One and Accenture for a long time, longest I've ever been anywhere. And once the pandemic hit um, and Capital One <laughs> went from a bank to a tech company, back to a bank. Uh, that's when I was like, I got I got a code, man. I, I'm going to go crazy if I keep doing cyber remediation. So Qualify, I was like, yo, you can code front-end stuff, a little bit of back-end stuff. We do mostly Go. I know you hate Go, but you can do front-end stuff. I'm like, sign me up. So like a lot of people I know at Capital One were there. Um, and they just, I, I think I've been there almost a year, and uh, they let me do everything. So um, I, I'm not full stack, okay? <laughs> but I basically kind of do full stack stuff. Um, completely over my head overwhelmed and it's massively fun so okay that was the short version i'm impressed <laughs> you thought that was short but that was short for me so primarily your front end but just touching a bit of the back end you know i don't know like i used to consider myself like a ua guy forever and I used to make fun of Java developers all the time just because like they kind of influenced Flash and they influenced a lot of the front end stuff around, you know, object-oriented programming and design patterns and stuff. So I'd always troll the Java developers because they they would get my jokes, right? Like I, you know, like what is it? You have a problem factory, ha ha. Like they would get that stuff. Um, and then one time my boss at Accenture got really mad. He's like, look, dude, you need to grow up. Like if you keep doing that, you're never gonna grow. And I didn't know what he meant, so we talked about it. He's like, Look, eventually you're gonna have to do back end stuff. Um, so we got a a gig at Disney where I actually got to do some of the back end node stuff. It wasn't a lot, but it was enough where I was like doing node all day, which is crazy because 15 years of my career, it was like, yeah, I do front end stuff. I don't touch the back end. That's for back end people. Right. 
But once you brought in Node and orchestration layers, there was a lot of opportunity for front-end people to like, you know, build their own stuff. And it was like JavaScript. <laughs> it wasn't hard. And a lot of the hosting was handled. It was a lot better. You know, pipelines are better. So that was kind of a gateway to like just playing with servers. And then once Capital One in the early days let you play with serverless, dude, like I could do anything I wanted on AWS. It was awesome. Um, and so I spent most of my days, you know, doing lambdas and serverless and stuff like that. So circle back to where I'm at now. And now we're doing like front end and middle tier and lots of testing and lots of pipeline stuff. So it's a little bit of everything. Um, if you were to say like, so are you a UI guy? I would say, yes, I do UI stuff. I do BFFs. Um, but I don't do like hardcore database stuff. Like I can, you know, mess around with Postgres and do queries. I, I run away. I'm really, I love Dynamo, but I don't get to touch it. Cause they're like, you're a UI guy. Stay away from the database. And um, most of my BFFs talk to other microservices. I don't like directly talk to data sources, if that makes sense. Um, yeah. So I would say 60% front end is probably where I'm at. I'm, I'm not good at CSS, but I do code a lot of front end, if that makes sense. Tailwind for the wind helps me a lot. So, how difficult was it for you to uh, pick up the back end? Really intimidating, really frightening. Um, I think the biggest epiphany moment that I, I had to question and say, all right, make sure you're not, you're, you're recognizing the situation for what's really going on is they wanted to do a very, a series of like validators, right. And, and validating email addresses and things like that. And we were using the Stripe library for credit cards and I started writing unit tests for it. And I started finding all kinds of issues. Not like when I say all kinds, there's like two or three that were really strange. Like it had a problem with uh, determining, American Express, and there was a bug where some of the cards weren't long enough. So it was very clear the code was good and worked for 90% of the use cases, but there was no test or anything else. So I Googled and I said like, yo, how do Java C sharp people approach email validation? Like, you know, I'm super intimidated and insecure. I don't know what's going on. And they're like, what are you asking exactly? Like, are you trying to ask how to validate an email address? I'm like, yeah, yeah, how do you do that? And they would show me these things. And you look at the Stack Overflow answer for like C Sharp or Java or JavaScript. I'm like, they look the same. They're like, yeah. I'm like, I thought you backend developers were like all assembly coders, like really smart. And like, you know, as front of people were just make things pretty and dumb. And they're like, I don't know what you're talking about. So I started seeing some really bad backend code and my insecurity just poof <laughs> evaporated. I'm like, dude, I'm going to crush this. So that lasted about a month. And then, then after a month, I like I couldn't deploy things. I had bugs where like you'd launch two node servers, but it would crash and you had a port in the background. You didn't know how to kill it. And you had to learn Unix to figure that out. Like, so that, that very quickly like humbled me. But um, in the beginning, it was very intimidating. Um, and just like, I, I constantly, you know, relied on ops to help me with server stuff. Right. I think the second was when AWS allow had like cloud, cloud formation and a lot of their serverless stuff. Dude, that like gave me an ego because I could build so much stuff so quickly and like I didn't have to ask my Unix friends for help. I'd be like, oh yeah, I'm good. I'm good. Occasionally I'd be like, what is a, like, do I need a port with this? I don't need a port. I don't have to listen, right? Okay, cool. Right. So like basics that they knew by heart that they, you know, a lot of them take for granted. For me, I didn't know the basics like of like a server and a Unix socket and writing the standard out, like all that stuff. You know, I didn't know any of that. Um, and I'm still learning basic stuff around that stuff. But it was just so so great because, you know, having to take the same JavaScript I did on the front end for, you know, decades 
then do it in the back end and then do it in a server world and then lately doing it in an ops world with like a serverless framework like yeah it's just massive so like if you were to say jesse we need you on a server project you'd be like i'm not a back-end guy <laughs> but if you said hey we got a serverless project i would totally be all over that i'd be like yeah i can do back-end no problem so it just depends on the context but yeah it was definitely well it, you know what it continues to be hard because even now when i look for jobs for like full stack stuff like there's very different opinions on like for like node or python what, what you use it for right like the way i would build apis is very different than like if you look at how the red hat team builds node apis like they're big express they're all about servers and clusters i'm like i don't know what i don't use any of that stuff right i do simple lambdas with like AppSync or api gateway right so even even knowing what i know i still feel I don't know, just insecure and not quite a server developer because I'm not doing any of that. I don't have experiences doing that. And most of my APIs are calling other APIs to like, you know, make my UI only have to make one call kind of thing or make the data make sense. You know what I mean? So it's it's a series of ups and downs. Some days I'm I'm like, dude, I'm the best. Other days I'm like, dude, I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> it depends it depends on the day, time of day. Today, today I'm in really good. I'm in a good mood today. I'm in a really confident mood, but <laughs> I'm sure tomorrow I'll, I'll find a test that has a bug and I'll be like, nah, this is frustrating. So like, uh, how did, how did you deal with that imposter syndrome? Wow, man, these are hard questions. Okay. So that one's really hard. Uh, the thing that helped me in the beginning, I still do. So like when I first started programming, I had this, thing called my it was like projects in my documents and i learned that was when i first learned that you could put an underscore on mac or windows and it'll like pop it to the top and because I, I i i'm not very organized <laughs> i'm like a mess so i would lose files right so if i did projects i could always find my stuff and what happened is over six months i had like different folders of projects i you know i kind of started to like like for example i'd say like i played a video game the character knows how to go from point a to point p how did they do that and it would go google like a star algorithms and things like that right and i would try like five times with five different projects like attempt one attempt two attempt three and like over six months like you'd have all these attempts and folders and it just made me feel really good to see like you know like i still feel coding's hard and i'm not making progress and look at all those folders i'm like holy crap like that's a lot of stuff i wrote like and i'd go back and look you know the stuff i wrote six months ago i'm like dude, that guy's a moron. Like I'm so much better coding now than I was six months ago. You know what I mean? So I think I continue that where I continue creating things like just, you know, like, like I, I know it sounds cheesy, but that Mr. Rogers like meme where he has like the four pictures and he like draws the crayon. He's like, you know, I might not be very good, but it feels good to have made something. And it's like so true because if I have this series of things I've made, some are good, some are great, some are horrible, a lot of horrible. That's fine. I learned it was an attempt and I feel really good. So when I, when I sometimes get frustrated, I can kind of step back, you know, and look at all that stuff. That really helps. That made me feel like really good. Um, the second is comments. So like YouTube blogs, emails, occasionally I'll just get like this amazing, you were the best. Thank you so much. <laughs> and it's like, I got that in the middle of like when a, a, a Cypress test wouldn't pass. And I'm just like, I don't know what's going on. And I'd read this comment. I'm like, you know, Cypress might uh, be a punk today, but like, I feel really good. So you just wait. So I'll be back in five minutes, right? That kind of stuff, like, really, you know, makes me feel good because I, I know I'm helping other people, right? So even if like I'm struggling, like, I made their day better. Um, and then I think the third thing 
is I've had so many failures, <laughs> like a list of things that went wrong from like running my own business to running consulting to trying to code sockets, you know, just everything. I've failed in so many ways um, and I've learned so much. So like when a situation happens, like, like for example, the other day I was with uh, um, uh, a junior on our team and we were trying to build something and we we're trying to convert in JavaScript an SVG to a ping and it was just going bad. <laughs> like all oh, the libraries were slow, locking up the machine. And, you know, normally you'd panic, like, what are we going to do? Like the sprint ends tomorrow, we're going to die. It's like, dude, chill out. I've seen this before. We're going to be fine. We're just going to ask them to do it and go. We're going to look at other solutions at the same time. It's no big deal, right? And like, so that constant, like doing the same thing over and over and over, but a bunch of different ways, um, you get desensitized in a good way. That's it's, it leads to like confidence. Cause you know, like I'll figure it out. Um, I think my wife said it best is like our whole job and she's a designer, but it's the same thing. Our whole job is to like be comfortable in ambiguity. Right. And so like, if you don't know what the hell is going to go on, like your, your first inclination is like, I'm going to freak out. It's like, dude, you'd be fine. <laughs> like, this is fun. We're going to figure it out. So I think, I think those three things of like just all the projects, all the failures, all the comments from people, um, and just doing them over and over and over, like enough gives you a large breath that you just feel you could tackle anything. You know what I mean? As long as you sleep, as long as you do that, as long as you do that, like that, that really helps. Um, that said, it still occasionally happens. Like I'll see an ops person, you know, like why well, I, I modified the Helm script on K8. I'm like, all right, back up. What's K8? Like Kubernetes, right? Is that what the Zgen's calling it today? So like that kind of stuff, you know, makes me intimidated. Um, the whole like, you know, like today I, I, I was bragging about doing green blue and they were like, well, yeah, you know, Helm has that built in. And I'm like, Ugh. <laughs> like, did I really accomplish anything? I don't know. So like, you know, there's, there's, it, there's constant things where I just realize um, the more I learn, the more I don't know. So like I have to temper that with like, I, I should, I should deserve the right to be excited, but you know, it's okay to realize like, dude, you're not going to go everything, but you should try. And what you do know is good and you should feel good about that and your accomplishment and your contributions. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's a long winded answer for it's a constant struggle. <laughs> That's the short answer. Constant struggle. So when you're moving up positions, right? Like let's just say from a software engineer to a senior to a staff, do they expect you to know like full stack, like back end to, cause I'm a front end engineer. Like I love UI stuff, just like you, like just I'm playing just UI guy, but like I'm seeing that a lot of people, like even in like whenever the job applications open up and like whenever you look through it, it's they're always asking for like, you know, full stack senior software engineer is always a full stack developer he's never like a ui guy or never a back-end guy yeah it's tough i mean there's there's no as far as i can tell there's no consensus in jobs so you get all these hr people who take what you wrote imagine a function that you give it a string like hello and it goes blah, blah, right that's what the hr people do to these job descriptions so when they get on a website you're like okay, are you looking for a front-end guy or back-end back guy? Like, can you elaborate? Help me out here. Um, and then some people say, dude, we don't know. Like, we think that's what we need, but we're not sure. We're looking for a consultant to tell us. Um, and then, you know, some people. So I don't think any of those jobs I really pay attention to because I, I've done so many interviews and they're all horrible, you know, even with good companies and good people 
that I've just never paid attention to those. If they say you need to back in, it's like, yeah, it sounds great. Yeah, it sounds great. Like, whatever. I'm going to apply anyway and see what they say. Um, I found that some companies, they need a backend pe person because they don't have one. So for example, like if they have an existing Java backend and they have, you know, the Java people and they're laser focused on their existing job, they don't really have time to modify it for us. So you basically have two choices. A, you just consume the APIs as is and take their nasty XML soap and try to make it work with JSON, right? Or you're like, all right, I'm going to try to read a tutorial in Dev2 about doing node orchestration layers. It sounds like I could try to do it on my local host, maybe not deploy it, but I get it local host. Um, so that kind of stuff, like there's occasionally people who, you know, they just like, like I think the first 15 of my years of my career, I did UI and I, you know, call myself an architect. <laughs> like I'm an architect. I only do UI though. I don't do backend systems or pipelines. That's we're testing. That's nonsense. Right. So like there's, there's people I know who are 30 year vets and they just do UI stuff. Right. And it's fine. And they're happy and they're awesome. Like they, you know, angular react, whatever. Then there's people who are like, um, like a, a lot of the, some of the big companies have this attitude of, you know, front ends, like just yet another programming doesn't really require a different skill set. So they'll take a job developer on front end. And as a front end person, I think, you know, that doesn't generally go well unless they're paired with someone like us who like, you know, lives and breathes front end. Right. So I think in those cases, like if you want to talk about your earlier question, boosting self-esteem, like that role, they think they don't need, you know, a front end person and they really do. And so you're, you're actually doubly challenged because it's like, without me, this project would crash. And second, I have to teach these backend people front end because they think, oh yeah, you just like, don't worry about CSS, not a big deal, right? And then, you know, the product owner yells at the team. It's like, all right, we'll work this out. Um, and then third, you have to evangelize how you're helping and, you know, why the user matters and, you know, what the designer says from the product owner matters. Like all that's on you because you're the one who cares about front end and you know, the user and how they use this stuff, not like that. And then the fourth thing, which is awful, is that a front-end person, when something breaks, they ask you because they see it in your stuff. It's like, dude, so that's why front-end people could work for 30 years as a front-end person and get away with it because you're doing so much. And, you know, these back people are like, back-end's harder. It's like, you don't know what you're talking about. Like, there's so much awesome stuff in the front-end that uh, just brings it all together. You know what I mean? Gives a face of it. And at the same time, you're like, it needs to be more pink and the padding needs to be more this way. And oh, that's fantastic. And all oh, the mobile breakpoints, that looks great on iPads. You know what I mean? Like all of that, both sides of your brains. So yes, there are companies who are completely fine with front-end people. There are co companies who don't know they are, but once you get in there, like, oh man, I didn't realize like, you know, that's much of your job. Um, and then there's some companies who have no idea and they just like, well, if you're not, like, if you don't know .NET, like, you need to do Angular in .NET. Sorry, that's what the job requires. And I'm like, you're delusional. But you can't say that in an interview, right? Unless you really don't care about the job and burning bridges. <laughs> you know what I mean? So yeah, it's it varies, man. Like I've seen the same same weirdness in small companies where like they're like, look, we're a startup, we're bootstrap, we gotta you gotta know the whole stack. And I'm like, dude, like you're not gonna find a front end person who's super dope at like architecting large angular view whatever ui things and then they're like can slay some custom css right like they're super rare and then conversely you're not going to find someone like that and they're like what does that mean like what do you mean like css person i'm like oh god really like are, am i charging for this consulting you know what i mean like those kind of people they don't get us they don't get front-end people 
Um, and so it's just, you know, hard. And, and to be fair, a lot of them like don't know the difference between why we'd use go and node. Right. So I, I always like, I get angry and then I do what I always do. And I breathe for 10 minutes ago. They know not what they do. It's my job to teach and help. And I love this stuff. So stop whining and go evangelize. So I try to help. Right. Um, which means that 90% of those companies you interview, they're like full stack. It's like, well, do you know Angular? Yes. Do you know Node? No. We don't want you? Cool. You don't want to work there because you're, <laughs> you're going to have to do all those things I said to teach them about the value of front end. What you want is leadership that values what you bring to the table. Like That's where you want to work as a front end person. And if you want to get an opportunity to do back end, awesome. You know what I mean? Um, so yeah, there's definitely people that at certain levels, it has nothing to do with tech stack. The levels that I've seen, whether it's consulting, startups, uh, you know, companies, like they're all looking for like experience. They don't really care about tech stack. Cause like once you get to like the upper echelons of like, I don't know, basically like once you're managing multiple teams, and when I say managing, I mean like you're a tech lead, you're not managing people. It doesn't matter the tech stack, whether it's front end or back end. What matters is your ability to communicate, organize, and things like that, and keep you know teach the team. So they don't care. And front end is the most oddest duck in that stack because if you read like what is it like charity? Is it Charity Majors? I, I forget her, her exact name, but she like posts all about the leadership stuff on Twitter. Um, if you read like Dave Farley and all these people, they talk about like how do you organize teams. Like front end is like a footnote if you're lucky. <laughs> you know, they're talking about Unix and ops and back end. It's like, oh, okay, so like I guess, you know, websites and front end don't really matter to Amazon.com, right? Like, you know what I mean? Like it's just ridiculous. So so yeah. To to the TLDR to your your question is I haven't seen the front end tech stack or full stack really matter in levels. It only matters in the job interview. <laughs> After that, it doesn't matter. Okay going off on that what would you suggest for people who, who are front-end developers but want to learn back-end too wow um, by back-end i mean node.js not java or yeah yeah yeah, yeah totally things, but i hate java at this point so <laughs> not talking about that so. <laughs> the um i think there's like two things um before you learn it, like question, like why you want to do it. Right. Because, um, I'm a spoiled brat. Okay. Like I'm super privileged and like, I only, I like to have fun. So like, I'm only going to learn something if like, you know, it, it's hard. Right. And I want to challenge or be it's I, I, after about a couple of hours or a couple of days, it's like, dude, this is going to be fun if I figured this out. Cause it would help my front end, blah, blah, blah. You know what I mean? Some people feel they need to learn for a job and that's totally, totally valid. But if you're going to do it because you think that you should do that instead of front end and you don't enjoy it, like that's super lame. Like to, to reiterate what we said before, like you can totally have a career doing nothing but front end. And like, there's plenty of people who'd love to have you. Like they're out there, hard to find. Yes, but they're, they're out there. Um, but if you want to learn front end, the way I did it was basically, I'm going to make up a number three. So the first was I worked with a lot of good back end people. And, and it, what happened in the, I'd say mid 2000s to late 2000s. A lot of these backend people are like, I've been doing .NET forever, Java forever, and I'm tired of it. I want, it sounds like you fronted people have all the fun. I'm like, yeah. <laughs> They're like, please teach me. And I'm like, I'll make you a deal, sucker. You teach me backend and I'll teach you frontend. So like having a backend person that like really wants to make the transition, 
like you, you know, you can tag team, like that's fantastic um, because they can answer the basic questions. Like, can you tell me what cores is in one sentence? <laughs> not, not a five page blog post. Like what is cores and why should I care? Um, and then what is Unix socket? Like I'm literally talking to a guy on LinkedIn and I'm like, dude, I don't know what a Unix socket is. He's like, here's Wikipedia. And I'm like, can you answer that <laughs> in a sentence? So like basics like that can just leapfrog, you know, the years that you spend trying to figure things out. Right. The second is that there's actually two kinds of backend that I found. Well, three kinds. The first is you don't have to do APIs or, you know, backend for front ends, like for front end stuff, you can do tons of backend stuff like for batch processes, extrand, you know, ex extract, transform load, ETL stuff, um, and all kinds of like reactive architectures that have nothing to do with UI. And as long as you know Python or Node, like AWS and a little bit of Azure, like have all kinds of wonderful Lambda and function tutorials, and I think Google Cloud too. And they're fun because you can make these little functions in JavaScript or Python and they do stuff like upload files and transcode them. And like you can send them things and they spit out HTTP responses, but it has nothing to do with Express. You know what I mean? Um, so those are really fun because you can just like munge data, but you don't have to like show it anywhere. You can just look in a terminal. The second ones are like um, if you're a front end developer and your UI has to make three calls to show a screen. That is a perfect gateway drug to be like, all right, I'm going to make my own API that isn't lame. I'm going to go Google, you know, ExpressJS or Restify or Koa or one of those things in Node <clears throat> and say, all right, how can I deploy this to like Heroku or AWS so my UI can talk to this thing? And then the Node thing will do a bunch of fetch calls to those things, right? So th that's a great gateway drug because you have a, a massive motivation to make your UI code a lot simpler instead of doing like, you know, the saga pattern or a really complicated orchestration on the UI, which is very frustrating, right? It's, it's nicer to click a button. It goes, Ajax call, got call. Thank you very much. Instead of like, hold up, I got to get an ID here, then parse some soap here and then call this guy five times because he's got massive technical debt and no one wants to fix him. And then pray, assume it works, bring it all back together in a nice little JSON object so my UI can draw it. Like you could get rid of all that if you could just make one Ajax call yourself and then you're back and figures all that out, right? It's like, that kind of stuff is awesome because then your UI is like a lot more stable. You look like more of a rock star. You know what I mean? So that's a that's a good one. Um, I I think a lot of the articles on Dev2 are like super noob focused because there's so many new people there. So like it's kind of cool to see the same five articles five times, but like from five different perspectives. So like if you're like, well, I want to learn Express and I keep trying to learn it, but it's hard. Dude, go there. There's like 50 articles that say the exact same thing, but like the sentence structures, you know, different people from a different background. You know what I mean? That's a great one. Um, and then like just general APIs, like Amplify for AWS, if you use their CLI tool, their tutorial like walks you through building an entire front end, an entire AppSync GraphQL backend with Dynamo. It's nuts. It's absolutely nuts. And like you can generate the whole thing. Um, you might not have any idea how it works, but at the end you say, I built a full stack app, sucker. And like, <laughs> I don't know how it works, but I'm proud of it. That's a great way to put a backend because then you can say like, well, it wasn't REST. You know, that's like 1990s. Like what I did was typed GraphQL. You know what I mean? So that's always, that's a really fun way. Um, and then I think the last one is really some of the Python stuff is neat because it looks like JavaScript and they have like another community like us Kind of like because like Python, you know, has been around for a while. They've they've done like 
back end, machine learning, a little bit of front end stuff. So you can see the same thing in a different way. So if you compare like Django with Express, it really helps your context because you can see how a completely different community talks about like Node in a in, in a different way. It's just it's I thought that helps a lot. So those four things like reading Dev two, building the BFF, playing around with some of the serverless stuff, using the Amplify CLI, um, and then you know just going looking at what the Python guys are doing with like Django and stuff. I think those five things are how how I did it. <laughs> That's how that was my journey is to do those five things at the same time. Yeah, having a having a mentor helps a lot. If even if they've only been around for six years, like dude, it's awesome that they can answer so many basic questions. That helps. So, what are some of the better lessons that you learned from uh, your mentors? Oh God, <laughs> um, you know what's funny is like some of the lessons I learned, like I have to relearn in a different context. Um, mainly, those are communication, but like I think the the first one I, I learned back in the day was that um deploying like simple things is a lot more fun than complex things so like to give you an example i was deploying this ui and it had no uh connections to the back end it was it was literally just like a flash like tutorial like you click through kind of thing you know stuff like that and the kids are making those with like i think robux nowadays it's so simple but but because it's a self-contained thing it can't screw up. And so I really liked, you know, the concept of like starting simply and moving up. I don't know if you guys have seen the enhanced dev stuff that uh, Brian LaRue and um, KJ have been doing. They basically have like done their best to start on the simplest website app possible where you do HTML, CSS, and a little bit of JavaScript. And like the goal is to follow web standards, right? So it, if you add complexity over time, fine, but like you start small. Um, and so like, that concept of deploying something simple has really stuck with me because if you look <clears throat> at like every code base that you know I've worked on that other people have worked on and I asked them like you know tell me about a code base that you hated the most consistent thing with all of them is they all started small and simple and grew to this massive nastiness and so that's why I've fallen in love with like a lot of the serverless and microservice stuff because you can start small and keep it small. So you don't hate it two years from now. You might dislike it, but that is a massive far cry from like, I'm going to quit this job because I hate this code base so much. Like that's that's massive, you know, impressive. So the, the simple things I think were cool. Um, teaching me about like just, you know, the concept of like object pooling. Like I had no idea that was a thing. Um, you know how like in games, like they'll have 50,000 sprites on the screen and stuff. Um, and I was like, well, how do they get like a thousand? Because like, if I do it, my game crashes in 30 seconds. So like, well, that's because you're spawning new things. You need to reuse them. Like, what do you mean reuse them? And they're like, you know, like storming an object pool. I'm like, I have no idea what you're talking about. It's like, well, do you know what an array is? I'm like, kinda, or an object, right? And you just like reuse the instances instead of new thing and then you destroy it and garbage collection, you know, destroys your RAM, um, object pooling. So like that concept I use it everywhere now. Like I use it with lambdas when you're trying to cache in the temp directory. I use it with Redis. Like I mean, that is an object pool. Um, use it with keys, it, you know, trying to reduce your bill for AWS secrets manager for Lambda. Like these little simple concepts, I just, I keep reusing them over and over. Um, I don't have it on my desk, but the pragmatic programmer, the the one thing I remember, like the, the there's only two things I remember from that book, um, but some of my mentors echoed was text is powerful. Um, I've seen that like, like JSON has literally 
taken over the world. It's done everything. I mean, you look at like everything from REST APIs to how you generate step functions um, to how you communicate through microservices. Like it's all with text, JSON. And there's people like, well, you know, if you use protobuf, it scales massively because it's binary. And as it's exponentially increases, the file size goes down and blah, blah. I'm like, have you ever debugged a protobuf call? It's nightmarish. And like, did you remember to regenerate? Like, dude, it's the worst. So like, yes, there's benefits and I acknowledge they're good to use, blah, blah, blah. But like JSON is so much simpler to use, right? And um, so that that concept, like the, the text is powerful. Um, back in, I don't do any more, but back in my freelance days when I ran my own business, like they talked about tracer bullets because we as software developers like think, you know, we've got a general idea of what our product owners or business people or clients want. And so we try to build something and it's either like on the mark, not quite on the mark or way off. Right. And so like, it's better to spend a little bit of time and iterate. Um, and so that iteration concept of like tracer bullets where you like try to, you know, every other every hundredth round is like a, a glowing phosphorus and you can see where you're aiming at night or, you know, it's a machine gun that, that concept of, of very quickly getting something because you think you're on the same page with the product owner or your, your coworker and you're not. And so like doing those quick iterations has just improved everything from ops to when I'm making a UI change and I completely foobar my media query with tailwind. Right. So like doing a little bit of change, like, okay, get on, get, go back to the last git commit um doing designs it's like when a client would say i need you to do a design i'm like is are you thinking about this this or this i've shown like three different website designs like what kind of e-commerce system you're looking for um just you know that very quick iteration applies to everything and so those tracer bullets have really helped narrow down stuff because again if everything's an ambiguity like what do you do well that's you know the, the quick way of like i think that the other example i've had i've heard was when you fly a plane from LA or you're riding a plane when you're flying a plane riding a plane from LA to like Hawaii they constantly make course corrections so it's not like a point A to point B and that course correction is you learning new things and um I don't know if you guys watch Dave Farley but he talks about a lot of the CSCD stuff the whole goal of those quick commits of those of you know the iterations is to learn and a lot of people are like, no, no, it's to release software and provide value for our users and make sure that our code is readable. It's like, dude, no, it's not. It's like to figure things out. Like, does this work? Is this what the user wants? Are we making progress? Like, I don't know. Did the test pass? I don't know. Let's figure it out. So like those, those little bits of learning, you know, make it on the right track. And then later you have to relearn because you, you know, haven't deployed in a while or you're not sure if the same, you know, the users are using the same feature, who touched that code. Um, so those kind of things of um, tracer bullets iterations helped. Um, one one mentor told me a lot about how the clients in demos, when you demo to them, it 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 needs to work. And so I found like a lot of the technical debt that we would accrue during a project just to make sure that we'd fake things for a demo, you know, caused all these problems. And I started watching like a lot of bad software projects where they would intentionally like fake things for a demo but not actually show the real thing and so a lot of these software projects would kind of either end or continue on with like the user or the client or your you know your product team just not liking the, the software team like the technology team and department in general and and trying to like see those relationships is like they need to work it takes a village to build this stuff and we can't have this you know this dislike and this this politics and this hate and so anything you can do to improve the frequency 
of those releases, the quality of those releases, and more importantly, our like me, you, like our self confidence in those um, helps you know heal all of that and make all of that better. And again, like I'm not in this for a job. I'm not here to support my family. Like I'll go to freaking construction and do that. What I want to do is have fun. And th the way we do that is if you produce software and everyone like thinks this, you know, rocks. Yes, the problems are hard, but that's why we're here. We like hard problems. So that kind of stuff, I think, has is you know just been a massive um, journey of the past, I don't know, twelve years. Of basically, learning how do I test this stuff? How do I release it with confidence? How do I make it so when I show my mom, my my user, my client, my product owner, my boss, you know, the software? how can i feel confident that it's released and i think that's been kind of a just a rabbit hole of like learning about you know continuous integration continuous delivery unit testing integration testing performance testing all that stuff and you're like oh that's you know they taught you about testing i'm like no it's more about the quick iterations and the confident iterations um that kind of stuff is really just influenced you know my trajectory of my life um the woman who did the, she was like the engineering manager. I did a whole presentation on her. This is embarrassing, but she, she was the one who did the Apollo space program computer. Um, to this day, like, I, I think she's like in her seventies, she's still running a company to do air checking and software. So like that was her, like, I don't know, fifth, like hurrah. She's like, all right, I went, I sent a bunch of men to the moon with my uh, computer skills what's next for me? I know I'll figure out how to detect errors in software. And I'm like, dude, like I, I thought I was awesome doing try catch. Cause like no errors here. I got them all like Pokemon. It's like, no, 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 no. The woman who sent people to the moon is still trying to find the errors in software scientifically. I'm like, Oh God, I'm doomed. So yeah, that kind of stuff has been, um, you know, like a, kind of just interesting to watch how every single programming language has an interesting way on how they deal with errors. Um, back in people are very different than front of people. Like front of people are like, we just kind of put them in the same bucket of like, something went wrong, user doesn't care, no one worries. The back end people are like, we must monitor this and detect how it exactly happened. Unless they're in a company who's got so much techno that like we'll put it in a bucket, no one cares. <laughs> you know what I mean? So that those kind of things have been um, interesting to, to do it. I think my latest mentors have been my boss and his boss. They're, okay. Let me, let me make sure I phrase this correctly so I don't get fired. So my boss's boss is obsessed with monitoring. I am a noob at like monitoring and alarms and, and test around alarms and like, you know, swimming in Elasticsearch and then comparing that with like InfluxDB and Grafana and look at all your software's metrics. Um, and, and even just basic, like, you know, you just do console.log, right? And like, no, it must be JSON. Right, but it's JSON. No, but it has a timestamp and it's ECS format and it makes sure it fits in Elasticsearch so you can easily search the fields. So I'm like, dude, slow down. So like monitoring, I think, has really improved um, a lot of things because I've, I've spent, you know, 12 years being obsessed with like when I release code, it'll work. And if not, I know why immediately, right? Now it's like I haven't touched it for six months and it blew up and it's not my fault, but I get blamed because I'm the front end developer and everyone sees my stuff. So how can I proactively, you know, know about these things ahead of time? That's, that's been my, my latest, you know, shtick is like trying to get my CCD pipeline to make these, you know, monitors around my code and then, um, make sure I can keep it all in my head. 
in addition to like the front end stuff, the architecture stuff, the back end stuff, the APIs that we're trying to call, the changes they would like me to do, the the unit test and integration test I have to update for this stuff. Like the monitoring is um like I'm sure y'all somebody's on your podcast has had to mention the one more thing rule where like every developer is always got one more thing. And so like you're like, hey man, you should really check out like easy peasy. So if you're using React and like, you know, the context is really hard for state management. Well, easy peasy is like an easier redux. It's like, dude, we're using context. It's fine. We don't need one more thing to add to our problems, right? And so that one more thing has to be super valuable for you to like say, okay, I'm going to take, instead of 180 pounds of stuff loaded in my head, I'm going to take 181, right? Because it's worth it. You know what I mean? So the monitoring has been um, my biggest challenge right now to do that. Um, I guess the last, the last thing has been just the communication around like back in my consulting days where you want to listen to people and how you listen to like developers, how you listen to product owners, how you translate between those two. Um, I think the biggest challenge for me has been listening because I get so just excited and like a product owner say, well, I think next rent we should. And I'll be like, dude, are we going to do that project? And like, Yes, yes, he calmed down, right? And so that kind of stuff has been hard to listen. Um, so like, for example, to give you, one developer was having a problem and I listened to their problem and I realized it wasn't about their code. They just had a really bad day. And so listening to them, like literally you could, you could see at the end of five, it was just five minutes, but the end of five minutes, I was drinking coffee. Like you can see that weight come off their shoulder, right? And so like that kind of soft skill stuff is just really hard because I, I'm laser focused on you know computer stuff, but it's like, hey man, when's the last time you talked to your coworker about something other than unit testing? <laughs> or have you asked them about their day? Um, my daughter gets really irritated about her friend because she, you wanna talk about mentors, I'm learning from my kids. She has this friend who never uh, reciprocates. She just to say like, you know, my leg hurts. She goes, well, my leg hurts too. Instead of saying, Oh, it does. What's that's sad. Is there anything I can do? Like, like the caring, the empathy. So I've been, I've been learning a lot around how empathy goes a long way. Like, um, every Twitter argument I've been in, like I can attack with empathy and it's so much more effective because I can, they eventually after about five minutes will tell me where their trauma is coming from. So they'll say like, you know, I really hate go. And I'm like, Oh yeah, why is that? And like, well, because of blah, blah, blah. I'm like, so what you really are is you don't like how hard Kubernetes is. Have you tried to play go on Lambda? Right, or something like that. Um, so I think the empathy has really changed a lot because if I just assume best intentions for other people and assume um, they mean well, right? And like they just want somebody to listen because a lot of people just don't like, what was it? Mr. Going back to Mr. Rogers, like he said, like sometimes it's not okay for us to sit in silence with each other and just, you know, enjoy the silence and then listen, right? We always have to like fill the air with conversation. I do it all the time in the elevators. Um, and coders, we cheat because we have these things. So we're not actually sitting in silence with each other, right? We're actually sitting <laughs> banging on keyboards. But being able to like just sit with somebody and let them, you know, tell them about their day um, pays mad dividends. Because then when you're in a meeting and you're not quite on the same page, like they get you back on the same page and they know that like you mean it benevolently. You're not being a jerk. You know what I mean? Or when you're trying to get your architecture approved and somebody doesn't like some of your comments about their, you know, architecture modifications, um, like you understand where they're coming from. So like that kind of empathy has been hard because, you know, I have kids <laughs> and like, I don't have 
energy for your problems because I have enough kids, you know, problems with my kids. You know what I mean? So that's, um, I think that's been probably the most, I would say most powerful change in my entire career is just, you know, empathy for other people, assuming everyone's dealing with crap, trying to do the best I can to help. Um, you know, whether it's YouTube arguments, PR reviews that get a little heated, uh, consulting, dealing with a client who's got a lot of frustration because they have a project that's not going so great. I mean, it applies to everywhere. You know what I mean? It's one of those like core things that applies to everywhere. Um, so yeah, that's, 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 that's the things I could think of. I'm sure there's more. <laughs> I've had so many mentors teach me so much stuff, but that's, I think as to today, those are the five things I remember. I think that was five. Was it five? I lost count. <sighs> so, uh, uh, you were talking about like deploying stuff quick, right? And we are talking about like the serverless function and microservices, but that's for the back end. What do you think about the micro front end stuff, deploying stuff? So I, I feel like if you look at microservices, um, and I'm still learning, okay? Like I'm still a fronting guy who does a ton of BFFs, but I don't really do APIs unless it's for fun stuff or back end, you know, processes. Um, but I feel like the concept of microservices is old. And there's a lot of uh, different aspects, different technology stacks that we can look at and see evolutions. You can go to Martin Fowler, you can go to Dave Farley, you can go to all these, you know, old and young thought leaders. And they they have a lot of, what's the R word? Where like, they, they all say the same thing, right? So you know, that like, okay, generally, you can't get two experts to agree on what is proper object oriented. But when two of those same experts are saying the same thing about microservices, that makes you feel really confident in that knowledge because they're agreeing, right? And you have a lot of smart people agreeing on the same thing. So when I look at a lot of the microservices, I feel like we're mature enough now that we can do deployments with confidence. We know some of the pros and cons. Like, so for example, in Monolith, like dry, don't repeat yourself. Microservices, like dude, dry is gonna lead the world hurt. You can try, but like it's gonna hurt. Um, it's generally not good which is hard, you know, to unlearn. Right. And so like those kind of things are just known. They're talked about. You can find articles. There's five articles that say the same thing different ways. So you can get like a nice perspective change. The micro front end stuff, I don't think has been figured out every single, um, I've only been on two small ones, but every time we did it, like no one enjoyed it. <laughs> so like there was only one or two people that actually enjoyed working on it. Um, but, the thought was that this is good for our users and good for the teams, right? Um, and, and the problem I have with that is that if you look at the research, and I, I don't just mean like research of like blogs, I mean like the actual scientific research, it's shown that if you have small teams that can make their own decisions, they're typically more effective and that produces better software. Better being if we just measure it by just defects, take all the other quality metrics out, right? And so doing something that helps, you know, the teams versus you build software doesn't, doesn't you know, sit right. I mean, I, I know like one to two studies doesn't make a fact, right? But it, it just doesn't seem to sit right with how we develop software. We should be feeling good about our release. We should do it quickly and feel good. I don't think the browser has APIs that are quite mature enough to facilitate that. Like there's wonderful things with local storage there's five different ways of doing an event bus, right? To communicate whether you're using local storage or workers 
or send message or window. Like there's so many ways to talk to different modules on the same screen, but there's no like set of APIs to, to make that like natural, right? Like, like web components, for example, like if you're going to build components now, um, you know, you, you use web components. If you're a React developer, why would we use that? Well, don't worry about it. They'll compile to someday. You know what I mean? So like it's a standard and that's how you do things. There's no standard for micro front ends. I think the other issue too is that every time I've done it, there's it's very, very difficult to get the code to compile in a clean way. So like if you look at like React Lazy or you look at some of the Webpack modules or some of the, the Angular components they're doing where they can compile just one thing, the compilers they're doing that are amazing. They're also this thing called bleeding edge. And as someone who has super short attention span, is using super hipster tech, is always, I'm not ahead of the curve. I just play with you know those things that they're boring. I don't you know mess with them. But a lot of those tools are ahead of the curve, which means that like all the nuances, all the frustrations, and all the the fashion we haven't figured out yet. So like a lot of those things haven't shook out. So I think if you want to do the cutting edge, like microphone ends are where it's at because no one's figured it out. I think who's that Amazon guy? Luke, Luca, he used to be a flash guy. Um, Luca Mezzanelli, he's like some solution architect in Amazon. He wrote like one of the best books on it and he talks about the various ways to do it. I think his is so far the best definitive guide I've seen on the various ways that our people are approaching it with like real world examples, right? He's gone to companies, he's seen how they implemented it. Um, we were doing it at Capital One in a couple places. And I just, I think I've, I've, I've never enjoyed it. And also I, it goes back to what I said before. I've never seen a code base that started out big that people liked, you know, short or long-term. Right. And so that's why I've always liked really small react apps, really small view apps, really small Svelte apps, really small, you know, web components or Elm or whatever, because if, if they start small and they get big, you know, you're less likely to do it. Micro front ends, the goal is that your front end stays small because your feature is just a you know a component or maybe it's just a form or something like that um, in your tech of choice. But like the the rigmarole to compile to test locally, like those tools are super mature. I think they'll definitely mature because there's so many people doing it. But until we get like you, you remember when you use Webpack and it was like 12 seconds, it was like, oh my God, it's amazing. I made a bundle, right? Nowadays, 12 seconds, you'd be like, dude, I quit, <laughs> right? Like I'm gonna go use Vite or something written in Rust, right? So it's like milliseconds with hot module reloading. Like the expectations are, you know, it's gotta be like that, right? Like the TypeScript people are still dealing with that. So I think the micro front ends have to get there for it to get mass adoption because if people have to wait 20 seconds to see like hello, you know, console.log, like they're gonna be like, dude, this is dumb. You know what I mean? Um, but to your point, I've uh, on the flip side, I have never ever seen in my you know umpteen years of UI experience a front end team that has like you know eight teams like doing front end on a single website ever go well. <laughs> like it might go well. I mean, like people are like, this is awesome, right? Like they might like the company, they might like the team they work with, but they they have a lot of mince words for the code base, right? On like testing it and running it and whatever else which to me is a positive. It means that there's a lot of innovation left for micro front ends. Um, I just, you know, I haven't had the opportunities, man. Like we had a, a project at work that might've done that where it was like, like the design comps were so massive um, and they weren't unreasonable, right? It wasn't like, like they were trying to cram in functionality. Like it, it looked like valid use cases. And I'm like, dude, this could totally work micro front ends where like each one of these screens 
would be a nice singular app. And the reason is because there's so much, I can just see the CSS and the code like piling up. You know what I mean? Um, and I thought about it, but when I started doing research, I'm like, dude, the tools are so immature. You know what I mean? Where it's not a big deal because like, if you go back, dude, even like five years, right? Like we are all like what, or Webpack three, um, you know, Vite and all these other tools weren't a thing. Create React app was like budding. You know what I mean? So like you, you fast forward a few years, I'm sure there goes, there's going to be like two options that are rock. So I'm not, I'm not worried. I just know right now I'm super trepidatious and starting a microphone in that, if that makes sense. I get scared because of the tools. It's, uh, it's interesting how you mentioned microphone ends and said that, say that you're scared. Um, I've, I've recently transitioned out of, uh, like the e-commerce world and not really working with React to like jumping straight into micro front ends like where I work now. That's primarily what we build out is micro front ends. Um, and I guess I don't see it as, as being scary. Um, <laughs> and, and I'm curious why, why, why do you see it, uh, to be, to be scary? It is a very selfish, scary, like I'm not scared for the world. It's like yeah. when I worked with it, um, and I went like MPX Cypress open, right? Like that takes forever. Fine. But once Cypress is open, what you do is you save a file and it's like, you know, it reruns your test. Right. And if you're really frustrated, you can change them all to white box where you, you know, intercept every single HTTP call, every single AJAX call. And you're like, all right, I'm going to stub everything. I just want to verify if my front end code works to hell with the back end, Right. And so you can make those, those end to end tests super, you know, fast. Right. And if you do your weights correctly and your, your data attributes correctly, like you don't even have to add a lot of weight. So your tests are, you know, continuously fast, not flaky, and it makes you feel really good. Um, a lot of the ones I've worked on, you know, the test took forever. Um, and I was like, why are they taking so long? Why are all these, you know, things like, why does it take 20 seconds to see one line of code refresh? Um, looking at some of the tooling around how you test your component in a shell took like, you know, 10 seconds to, to boot up. Uh, the yarn install took forever. And I'm just like, I don't have patience for this crap. So my fear is that I'll put on this code base. Um, there's no way for me to speed it up because you can only make Webpack so fast. You can only make a byte so fast. You know what I mean? You can only do hot module loading. And what, what happens is you keep adding more code. No one is massively deleting stuff. You're adding features. You're adding CSS. You're installing new libraries. So it's not going to get better. <laughs> so like whatever you have now is what you got and it's downhill from here in terms of speed unless you know you have a platform team and that's like their sole job right to focus on that um and so the two experiences of i've had have been horrible and by horrible i mean a drama queen like i just i really didn't enjoy working on it at all it was very hard to debug very slow um whereas you compare that with like a vanilla install of Svelte or Create React app or, you know, NG CLI kind of stuff. And it's like wicked fast, hot module loading. You can you know, write a code and see it. You can run your test and see it. Um, that's what I want to keep like through the whole project, right? I, I don't like when it takes, you know, more than four seconds for me to see a change on the screen as a front end person. It drives me up the wall. Back end, fine. Like, you know, some of those things take forever. You can't run it locally. But yeah, that, that fear of, losing the the fast iteration the fast feedback loop of like i have a change do you like this media query a designer i have a change does your new json work and look the way you, you expect it back in developer like th those quick iterations are like you know the most valuable thing to me and if i lose that i i just i can't i can't develop <laughs> i'm i can't do it
so that that's where the fear comes from it's like slowness um cool. i think if i ever professionally did haskell and you ask me the same question be like oh yeah it's fine you know that and we have rust and it does its borrow checker and it takes two minutes it's fine i go get coffee but that's not now <laughs> for now i'm super impatient so that's that's where the fear comes from losing that fast feedback i'm terrified of losing that so going from um, like a senior engineer, where it's more of a technical position to like a staff engineer, where it's more leadership, what, what, what were some of the um, challenges making that transition? That's a good question because I don't, I don't think I'm a staff engineer. Um, I know that's what it says on my LinkedIn, but like, I don't like, I, I did a horrible thing talking to my wife. So we were talking about her position and my position. Cause she's, she's, a designer who's gone like the management track. So at Capital One, they they kind of do a uh, hybrid for designers. We're like, and I've seen this at other places too, big and small, where designers do both visual design, you know, information architecture and all that stuff, and people management, right? Because they're growing people in their design career and things like that, managing multiple projects. Um, a, Capital One and Accenture and Microsoft and a lot of others clearly separated in tech the individual contributors from the management. And so they would say things like, well, you still have to lead and, you know, individual contributor, but you're not managing. And I'm like, what does that mean? Like, I don't know the difference. And so a lot of it I found out by accident where like they would say, well, remember when like the junior came on and he's like, you know, how do I unit test? And you're like, dude, you asked the right guy. Like, I will talk your ear off about that crap and I'll show you the good ways, the bad ways and my opinions and other people's opinions. So you don't like, you know, design. Like that is leadership. I'm like, I thought I was teaching. He's like, no, dude, you're like taking initiative. You found that fun. You're taking that person, trying to improve their career, equip them to learn so they can do it on their own. And then later they're going to fix your crap. I'm like, that's leadership. But yeah. And then like in consulting, going to a client and trying to figure out what it is they need. So like the first two weeks, asking a ton of questions looking like a moron asking the same question five times because I don't quite understand or I don't understand what these acronyms mean or I don't know anything about the cruise industry, you know, like things like that. Um, taking the initiative to say, all right, guys, I figured out, I think what we're supposed to build is this. And then taking that information back, bringing the people together. So for example, we had a product owner, uh, a SME who knew everything about like this woman had worked in hotels for like, God, eight years. Like she was the, the woman you talk to when you walk in and you check into your room um, in, the, in front of the hotel. And we were trying to build for this media company, like a brand new hotel system. And and I think, like I was, I was iterating on that idea. So I brought her with the agile person who wanted to basically run the meetings and do the scrum stuff. So I said, well, dude, we're going to we're gonna do the three amigos. She's like, oh my God, like I, I thought it was the only woman out of this team of 200 knew what three amigos is. I'm like, yeah, dude, like except it's four because we got testers. Oh yeah. So I bring them together. So a lot of that leadership is, is just bringing people together, taking the initiative, teaching. Um, but at the same time, like all those people taught me stuff. Right. Um, and I, I didn't realize that like, just because you like might have been doing something for five years and you work with a junior, like literally this kid at work, he's helped me on like Elm stuff and tailwind stuff. And he's teaching me stuff and he's only been doing it for like three months. You know what I mean? And so that reciprocal learning, um, is just part of that. So even though I'm leading him in direction, I'm like, yo, these are the JR tickets we need to do the end and test. Don't worry about it. You take the mock one. I'll take the, the, the end in one that actually hits real services and we'll divide and conquer. Right? Like, 
no one's going to do that, right? Unless you know how to do that. I know how to do it because I've been doing this for so long. Um, and I have a responsibility to kind of, you know, divide that work, document it so people can understand it and then put it in JIRA. Because if I don't, then like we have no organization, right? And I've, I've lived through that disorganization. So I've kind of like watched all the good people that I was like, I want to be him when I grow up, but own, but not his off sport. I hate, I hate Unix and I hate Jenkins, but I like how we organize things. I want to be like that person when they talk to clients because they really push about how the user is like integral to their business. I want to be able to talk like that. And that guy, his tests are just amazing, right? So I've kind of like borrowed all the good, you know, things I've seen about the heroes I want to be. It's kind of like the Avengers. Like you pick the good parts of every Avenger um, and you say, I want to be that. And so you kind of emulate those behaviors and you test them out. Like you see how it works. Like, you know, my favorite was when we were using Trello and I was managing, I had my first, my first uh, three people I got to, to, to outsource. It was great. They were my three friends from Slovakia. And this one, she didn't put up with any crap. So I, I put all the, the Trello cards in uh, ready to go. So they weren't in the, you know, the backlog. They didn't need a refinement. And like the, I'd wake because they were eight hours or something like that. Heavens, I'd wake up every Monday and every Wednesday, and they would just be back in the backlog. She's like, "Yeah, these these don't make any sense. <laughs> like they're so bad." And so like it was a great way to like say like I'm gonna run stand up. You know, I'm gonna we're gonna do refinements. We're gonna get clear communication, and then that night I'll take and add some additional details. And in the morning I'd be like, "Okay, I clearly miscommunicated. Let me try again. Let me try a different strategy. Let me ask for advice from my boss because I don't know what I'm doing." So I think I think those kind of things of just you know watching what other people do that I like um, because like I didn't know that management has like different styles and I don't I don't just mean like um, uh, what's the word like you know some people micromanage and then and that's fine like they might have to on some certain task and then other people are like very hands off I mean like just their style about how they talk how they approach things how they give work. Um, how some don't give work. They expect you to conjure it, you know, and, and you're at the level where you should be able to figure that out. Um, all that kind of stuff. I've just kind of taken notes of watch people to do that. And it's kind of naturally followed. So go reeling back to like where my wife comes in, she still does things. So although she's a manager, she's still an individual contributor. She's like occasionally going into Figma, you know, knocking comps out, uh, reviewing other comps, reviewing designs, attending the design meetings and you know, she, she's just the way she talks in her maturity level compared to me. I, I've seen other people like that. I, I'm old enough to remember like, like five years when I started capital one versus the five years I've watched these people get promoted. I've watched them grow in their careers, not just promoted because they're promoted, but like they actually grew in their careers and I've watched them and I've started seeing the signs that kind of like say, you know, you've got three out of the four signs. I think you're going to be, you know, a manager someday. I can just see it. You know, I don't know if you're going to go management or individual contributor, but I can see it. And so she's the same way. She's got the communication style for being a director. Um, right now it's hard because we got kids and we got no patience. So we're just like, you know, dropping F bombs in front of, you know, VPs and stuff. But like we, like I've watched her do that. But me, I've been the same. I mean, I've learned a lot of stuff, but I've been the same in terms of career for like eight years. So I, 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 I borrowed that phrase, um, being promoted to your level of incompetence. Have you ever heard that? So it's like, uh, I'm not seeing nods. Okay, cool. So it's awful, but it's awesome. It's, it's kind of emo. What happens is you get promoted until you stop being promoted. Why aren't you being promoted? Because you are 
incompetent at the level you're at. If you were competent, you would be promoted to the next level. So they call it being promoted to your level of incompetence. So I'm at the level where my perception of my incompetence is influence. So when you start, and I'm, I'm going to borrow kind of like take Stripe, Microsoft, Accenture, Capital One, I'm going to squish them all together. But basically, if you look at the levels for an individual contributor, it's like, I have no idea what I'm doing. I'm an intern. You got help. I'm a noob. I'm, I'm ready to crush, you know, throw work at me. I'm an SA. I've got enough, you know, projects under my belt. I've done enough where, you know, I can hold my own in the code base. Uh, I'm at um, some kind of principal, right? I'm at a level where I could pretty much own an entire part of the project. I might not be owning the whole thing, but I could do the front end, the back end, um, a massively, you know, challenging form component or the adjust the Redux layer, whatever it is. Once you get to like, you know, the 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 manager level, whatever you call that, individual contributor. At that point, you're 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 running a team, so it's not just like the front end, the back end. Like you're you're seeing all that brings together. You're taking responsibility for making that happen, for pushing things, for recognizing when people drop the ball. And I don't mean like developers because we're awesome. I mean like product owners, designers, managers, leadership, uh, ops people. You know, machine learning, data scientists who think they're coders. Did I say that out loud? I think I did. So like that kind of stuff is is when it gets hard because once you want to manage multiple teams or, or influence multiple teams with your tech, not your responsibility, like I manage you, but like, hey man, maybe I could help you with your Cypress test or hey, have you thought about not using JavaScript? Like there's plenty of other languages that won't give you a heartburn. You know, that kind of stuff you have to influence. You have to earn respect. You have to find a way to get them pumped to talk to you about, you know, using tech or helping them. And that's called influence. And I have no idea how to do that. Every single article I've read about getting to the senior engineer or staff engineer level is about influencing others. And they don't just mean developers, like your homies. They mean like product owners, you know, taking risks on you and trusting you, right? And you're, you're, you've got all that trust. It's called trust currency. Now you can spend it by doing crazy stuff. Um, CEO saying we want to change our complete, you know, data layer to this brand new serverless thing instead of this on-prem thing. Um, how do you do that? You basically do a little bit of sales and marketing. And I've read all the articles and they're all strategic. They're like, here's how you influence. Cool. What we need as coders is tactical stuff day to day. What do I say to this person to convince him to stop not writing unit tests? They've hurt themselves 50 times. I tried, I told you so, but they called me a jerk. I tried to commit, but they deleted my PR. I I got unit test in a separate code base and they they stopped the alarm coming in Slack. Like, I don't know what to do. <laughs> like, I want to help these people. My agenda is benevolent. There is no malevolence here. I swear. I'm not trying to impress anybody. I just want to help. And like, that kind of stuff is really hard. So I feel like I've been promoted to my level of incompetence because I don't know how to influence other teams of my own. On my team, everyone knows that my agenda is to help. Like I love being the bard or the medic. Like in, I don't know if you ever play Team Fortress 2. Like the medic, like I just love healing people. Um, in d and I like being the bard. I, make, I like making sure everyone's happy, right? And so like, you know, the, getting influence on the team is kind of, kind of easy. Um, I found the testing thing is really hard, which is kind of neat. But to get to that next level, you have to influence multiple teams. I don't know how to do that. So like getting an, an intern pumped, I got you. Getting uh, a, a junior 
uh, a nice introduction to unit testing, integration testing, and then testing, um, you know, functional programming, U programming, like got you. But like trying to convince, you know, multiple teams to, to, to go this direction, like I don't know how to do that. So Her Majesty was concerned. She's like, maybe I've been promoted to my level in conference. I'm like, no, no, no. You've got the signs. And I think it's unfair because management has been around forever, right? So it's very easy to like read management books and look and see what are the traits that make a good manager. And, and I mean, you got to develop your style, but like what are those traits and for leadership and stuff like that? For individual contributor, it it just seems influence. And like, I'm still figuring that out. I think from, you know, everything I've seen from junior to senior engineer to a principal, it's all just about, you know, knowing everything about code. I've done, I've written code, I've written UIs, I've gotten my UIs tested, I've built an entire form, I've built an entire website with a bunch of forms with routing involved that has remembrance for local storage and it has nice little error screens when things go bad and we've covered all the edge cases and I put my little, you know, set of Easter eggs in it because I'm awesome that allows me to debug in production but no one else knows it. Uh, and I architected the whole thing, right? So like that path, like I just made that up. There's no book for that stuff. You know what I mean? There's like references and like Stripe and um, all these other startups who published, you know, their career path. But when you look at like what's expected, it's super nebulous. <laughs> like, like how you get there. So uh, TLDR, I don't know. I have no idea, but I'm trying. I'm trying different things. I'm reading a bunch of stuff. When I figure it out, I'll let you know but it could be just my horrible perspective. So I would definitely take it with a grain of salt. So you, you mentioned uh, unit tests a lot. So what, what is a, a good unit test versus a bad unit test? Well, dude, I was hoping you'd ask those kind of questions. Cause like I've been thinking so hard the past month that like we have the worst nomenclature. Uh, we don't even have a taxonomy. We have no um definition of what is good code what is bad code what is a good unit test what is a bad unit test um everything is philosophy and it's fine like because i'm i'm like i've i've believed for like 12 years of my life like i was an oop guy and then now i'm an fp guy and like i'm old enough to recognize that could change right and i could go back to being an oop guy i don't know so like i i, I recognize when somebody says good it's really like um what is good to you so with that context, I'll give you my answer. My answer for a unit test that's good is it's fast and it doesn't have enough mocks, stubs, spies, or fixtures that you pull your hair out trying to maintain it. As long as it has those two things, it's super fast and it's small enough that you're like, all right, I can read this and within two minutes, I understand what the heck's going on, what it's actually testing. And if I have to modify something, I don't hate my life. I think that's a really, really good unit test. Um, everything else is like context dependent. So for example, like my favorite is when someone says, I wrote a unit test suite. I'm like, cool. I'll check out the code. I'll turn off wireless and run it. <laughs> and if like it doesn't work, I'm like, those aren't unit tests. And they're like, now what does a unit test really mean? Like, is it not allowed to hit? And I think actually tonight, Dave Farley did the, the unit test um types i can't remember the types but there was some people especially in the .NET world like the c sharp world they're all about um there's no such thing as mocks or stubs within reason right like you just run your code in a test suite and it hits database it hits real apis and that test if your code actually works and i can as a front-end person i think we all agree like that's all the 
you know, most people really care about. Like that's why Cypress is so awesome. It's like, does it work or not? I click the button, doesn't work. Where I click the button, it works every time. Whereas like the other unit tests are, you know, does this particular piece of code work? Does this one work? Okay, now when we put them together, do they work? All right, this is great. And you keep building it from there. And that gives you confidence in the entire, you know, Lego-based system. Um, and I think they're both completely valid. Like the perfect example is World War II. We had stolen, <laughs> recruited, however you want to say it, a bunch of the, the German scientists and Russian scientists to come work with us um, to get to the moon. And we wanted to beat the Russians. And, and, you know, I, I'm being, I'm being stereotypical here, but the Germans were like, dude, we need to unit test every single piece, put them together. And once we do that, we'll, we'll feel good about our engineering parts that we can then assemble that test that, and then we'll be able to get to the moon with confidence because we don't want to ruin the moon. We don't want to ruin space. We want, you know, the, the public, this is a marketing thing, not just an engineering thing. And the guy in charge, George Muller was like, we're not doing that. We're going to do all up testing. We're going to take the rocket, the fuselage, we're going to put it on there. We're going to do a blast test and see if it works. We're just going to put everything together. And front-end developers who, who use Cypress first, you know, know what that is. It's all up testing. So I think those kind of unit tests for front-end people are way more valuable than that. Because like nowadays, unless you're doing like, like Figma, for example, a lot of our domain logic isn't in the code. It's on the back end, right? We're stateless. Like we don't do a lot of logic. We just at, like when everything breaks, we blame it on the back end people, which is awesome. Right. So for those kind of things, the unit tests there are actually like a Cypress in the end test. You know what I mean? It's testing it. Um, but again, that's fast because we can either hit a really fast API or just, you know, mock it away. Um, so yeah, it, I, I think as long as it's small, as long as it's fast and by small, I mean like it, it doesn't hurt you. Like you can read it you're like, all right, I'm, I'm cool with this. I don't need like an hour to figure out what's going on with the world. I think that's a really good one. Um, I like I like them when they can be run really quickly and paralyzed. So if you're running like, I think it's Mocha 8. I don't know. What, I think Jess does it per spec. But when you run um, all of them at the same time, like and it expedites how quickly they run, I think those are great. And you can only do that if you have really deterministic tests, right? Which is hard to do. So I think those are great. So small, fast, and paralyzable is, is another awesome one if you can run them in parallel. Um, yeah, I, 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 beyond that, it's all like context specific because some tests, you know, require a lot of fixtures that are really big because it's just how it is. Some fixtures, you know, they have a lot of mocks and like you don't have time to fix the code. So you're like, all right, well, at least there's a lot of docs and comments there to explain why it's horrible, right? <laughs> so like that kind of stuff. Um, yeah, it starts to get really context-specific after that. But yeah, those are my two or three rules, I think. Yeah. Those two. All right, guys. Do y'all have any uh, more questions? I know it's almost 1030, so. I could do this all night. Ah. <laughs> yeah, we'll have to definitely bring you in for part two. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, uh, I was gonna ask uh, any books that you recommend, like uh, I guess that that have helped you in your career or resources. So I have massive attention span problems. Yeah. Um, but I'm very. What I do with a lot of books is I will read like skim parts that I find interesting. So um, I don't know the whole book, right? Okay. So like the Pragmatic Programmer, I actually didn't read the whole thing. Um, I skimmed the 
I, I literally six months ago, I was like, you know, I feel really guilty. I never read the whole thing. So I went back to read it. I'm like, oh my God, this is so dated. Like I would never do that. But I forced myself to like skim it and see what they're trying to cover. Um, I felt like what was scary to me was that the lessons in the pragmatic programmer are just as relevant today. I mean, they talk about like OOP and like weird testing things that are not relevant anymore, but like a lot of the concepts in there are completely true. Um, the, <laughs> I, I'm sorry about this, Roger. I know you hate Java, but the head first design patterns allowed me in my OOP days to communicate. So irrespective of whether singleton's good, proxy's good, facade's good, memento's good, blah, blah, blah. Like having the ability to talk to those kind of people with those patterns and they, we have some kind of like mutual understanding was amazing because then I was a fronting guy and I was talking to a Java guy and I knew nothing about backend. He was like, oh yeah, it's a proxy. Okay, so like you're abstracting it away. I'm like, yeah, he's like, cool, totally got it. And so like having the ability to have an architecture discussion, you know, because of that book was awesome. Um, if you're not doing object-oriented programming, completely worthless. But if you are, or you've never done it, highly recommend it. Um, even though it's old, the patterns, you know, have been around forever. Um, and it's 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 like, you know, if they say Singleton's bad, cool, go read it, learn why it's bad, right? It's important to know that. Um, like when people say that global variables are bad, and you say why, and they stutter, either a you made them nervous, or b like they actually don't know, and it's fine, like. Go figure it out. So headfirst design patterns is, I think, thorough enough to show really good examples that are, you know, portable to Python, Node, anything else, right? Um, and you know, sadly, some of those patterns, which you can put uh, in a, the the JavaScript um, annotation uh, stage two proposal, or I think it's like stage three. It's only for classes. <laughs> so if you want to do annotations, like you do in, in Angular for JavaScript. Um, you only can do that in classes. So having design patterns, you know, helps with that kind of stuff. Um, I also liked, I don't, I used to have it on my desk, uh, the, the, the legacy, uh, testing legacy code. So there's a lot of super strange, um, OOP code bases that they talk about, but it's, it's applicable to go rust, you know, things that are imperative. Um, he, he talks about how you test these weird things that, you know, you inherit. I think a lot of these books talk about how do you build software from scratch? What about those of us who, you know, change jobs because the advice was to change jobs every six months. And, you know, I've, I've now got my six figure salary and my awesome title, but I've inherited this code base. I hate, how do I fix this? I'm so overwhelmed. So that book tells you how to test things that are a mess, which I just, I thought was amazing. Um, and he, he has a lot of things. Um, Dave Farley's new one, not the old one, the new one, his, his uh, continuous integration, continuous delivery book talks about, you know, the, the testing, the building delivery pipelines. Uh, it talks about trunk-based development. I think that was amazing. Um, Colin Mook, his original book on ActionScript taught me about game development because it had all the algorithms. So I didn't know you know, much about action script, but like the algorithms around geometry and stuff were like, dude, I should have paid attention to high school. This is awesome. Like, I didn't know you could use, you know, um, what's, what is it? Not algebra, but the other thing, whatever's after algebra, like using like the Pythagorean theorem and all that stuff and cosine, like all those in there were, were great for gaming. Um, Keith Peters making thing move. He also had a lot of game development stuff in there, which you can use for like Lua, uh, Corona or Roblox or Unity if you're doing C-sharp. Like, the algorithms are in that book. Yes, they're in ActionScript and Flash is dead, but the algorithms are legit. Um, the other good one was... Uh, uh, <laughs> this is so embarrassing. Who Moves My Cheese? Uh, 
when I lost my first job in my career, um, and a lot of people were losing their job, it was like the feel good corporate book, but it was a really good book and it really changed my perspective. And it made me think about like, okay, well, my world's changed. You know, how do I adapt to it? Um, and you know, I've, as someone who has a shortest, short attention span, it really helps me cope when like, you know, I've, I've been in a company for a year. I feel like I've got a got foothold and then like they lay everyone off. Oh my God. Like now what? Instead of freaking out, you know, it really helped. Um, see, there's gotta be one other one. Um, uh, oh yeah, this one. I'm sorry. It's, it's working effectively with the legacy code. This one, it, it's got a, lo a lot of good test stuff in it. Um, and there was, there was another one that was, oh yeah. I think the last one was, um, it's, it, it's, I can't read anymore. It's super frustrating. Steve Krug's don't make me think as a UI person, you'll read that book and you'll say, Jesse Warden, you suck. I read this and now I'm angry. And I'm like, me too. <laughs> like that, that basically every sin that a designer creates and we have to code, um, he covers why it's bad. And I just, I liked his approach to user interfaces and how we build things. Um, so that one really impacted my life uh, a lot. Um, everything else is online. Like all the books now I read are like online. Like a lot of the, uh, Adi, Adi, Adi Azami. He's like the, the, the dude who talks about Chrome and performance, a lot of stuff. He's written two. One of them is his backbone book where he talks about patterns. It's all in backbone. But like, if you've ever used, um, you know, like some of the, the older view stuff or older angular stuff, like it's still relevant. Like it talks about how you build that stuff. He's got a UI design patterns book online. that's free now. And it talks everything like UI patterns. It's fantastic. Um, I don't know. I'll have to, I'll have to look at my list, but I think those are the good ones. Hopefully, hopefully I got the titles right. I hope so. So yeah. Do you, do you have any uh, closing thoughts for the audience? Um, yeah, I, I think, um, geez, I got to summarize. Um, I really enjoy programming and I've been doing it for a long time and I, I, I definitely am different and I do different things now than when I started, but I still write code and 20 years ago, it wasn't okay to continue writing code. Now it's getting way more accepted. Um, and, and there's pros and cons to that. The pros are, it's not really defined. Um, if you if you played any video games where they have very clear you know skill trees, and you can go on YouTube and find out all the ways to like go on the level, it's very difficult to do that for individual contributor. Right, you have to kind of find your own path. That's also awesome for people like us who like to explore and ambiguity and figure things out, and you know don't have all the answers. So it can be fun. You don't have to go to management. You can still make lots of money and enjoy your job and build cool stuff. Uh, that doesn't stop. So don't let anybody tell you that you know you have to go to management or you, like you were asking earlier, Roger, like you have to go to back end. Like if you want to continue, you know, doing something that you enjoy, there are people out there who pay you. Yes, if you learn Perl two, you're going to struggle to find a job. That's just how it is. But if you love your language or your framework or whatever and you work hard you will find somebody to pay you so don't don't i i worry that people will pressure you into avoiding programming and it's you know it's definitely um something worth pursuing because i'm still happy doing it for those of you who are still trying to get into it um the same problem that i have now like if i were to have to quit my job or get laid off and get a new job 
I would have the same problem that you do. And that is interviews are broken. It's not your fault. You're going to have to heal after six months of doing it. And that's okay. It's just par for the course. It's normal. And I know it sucks, but if you keep going, right, the law of averages will work in your favor and you will get a gig. So just keep going. Don't give up. I know it's hard. Um, take solace in that someone of, you know, my experience has to go through the exact same thing you do. It makes us all equal, which sucks, <laughs> but it's worth it. So yeah, don't give up. Keep going. That's my advice. Man, we definitely appreciate appreciate you stopping by. We'll have to have you uh, on again. I appreciate it, guys. This is fun. Oh, yeah, most definitely. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in. Uh, we'll catch you all next time. Peace.